The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good day, everyone. Welcome to another week of Fantasy NBA Today. It's Monday. It's July the 12th. We rumble along. Another day in our pockets. Week 9 of the NBA offseason. We are almost two months into the playoffs. <laughs> That's the funniest part. Oh, boy, the way we finished that sentence. It's not the offseason. It still isn't the offseason. We are still in the playoffs. Yes, we're in the finals. Suns lead the finals two games to one. And this is kind of what we were talking about, and I'll get into that in a minute. Game uh, four of the finals isn't until Wednesday. Another two-day break between games and another two-day break between games four and game five. So, yeah, I mean, this is... I think I was talking about this on BetQL last week. The finals themselves are so ungodly in length. We are now, this is the seventh day of the finals, and there have been three games, and there isn't a fourth game until the ninth day. They played on the sixth to start this thing. That's day one instead of day zero. That's day one. Day nine is game four. That's ridiculous. So if the finals go, how far do we have to take this thing? The 20th, the 22nd. Yeah, finals could go as deep as the 22nd. Two weeks, three days. I mean, technically two weeks and two days if you count the 6th as day zero. But that's crazy. That's 17 days worth of stuff. If anybody wonders why people get NBA burnout, it's because the finals never happen. They just... I mean, I'm going to keep watching because, you know, we're all a bunch of basketball junkies around here, but... I've had it happen to me before where I was like, I honestly don't know what day they're even playing at this point. You gotta go every other day. Today would be game four if they were going every other day, and game four is not for two more days. Five, six, seven. Finals would go as deep as the 18th if they were playing every other day. And instead they could go an extra four and a half-ish. <laughs> I mean, I know it doesn't seem like all that much, but... I promise you, it's a big deal. And they want to make sure ABC wants to get all these games, so they, they want to try to find good days, get them into prime time, get that Saturday slot, whatever it is. In any event, they've been fun, at the very least. I still hate the fact that there's two days off between games repeatedly during these finals, but they have been fun. And we'll talk about those in a minute. We're also going to talk about the Denver Nuggets as we finish up our curly queue. That was the Northwest Division. And tomorrow we'll break into the Southwest, which is not at all the Southwest, but it's fine. We don't. If I'm going to worry about finals taking two days off, I have to let something go, says Old Man Yelling at Cloud. And that is the nomenclature of what the divisions are actually called. Because, look, I mean, we're. We had Minnesota and Oklahoma in a Northwest division. So obviously that part doesn't make any sense. I am Dan Bespris. Dan Bespris. You can follow me on Twitter. That same name, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation, hoop-ball.com, the website, at hoopball tweets, at hoopball fantasy are the websites. No new podcasts 
to tell you about this week. Finally, those of you who thought we had too many new shows, I don't know if such a thing actually existed, but uh, those of you wondering how many weeks in a row the, the, that HoopBall could debut a brand new show, the answer was that, that was it. That was it now. So you got all these brand new shows, the all-rookie pod, pun intended, the Dynasty show, NFL, Fantasy NFL Today, and the reboot of HoopBall Heat a lot of stuff to like on that front. A lot of stuff to love on that front. New episodes of the All Rookie Podcast dropping late last night and punt intended dropping earlier today. That was an article on uh, dynasty rankings that were right on the money this last year and how you can use that information going towards next year. Shout out to Rhett and Travis putting together a nice show. Shout out to Luke and Ben over at Hoopball Heat for revamping that podcast. Pretty excited about the fact that that's back in the mix. And we rumble along. Let's talk about the finals first, because I don't think there's a ton left to say other than we kind of told you so. Not necessarily that I thought Milwaukee was going to cover, but that this series... So the one thing I got wrong is that I didn't think Milwaukee was going to run away with any of these ball games. And frankly, just looking at that game from Sunday through the the prism of I'm going to look at everything except the final score I would have told you the game was a decent amount closer than 20 the Bucks had five additional three-pointers over Phoenix which is always a number we knew was coming down the Suns have never been this season a massive three-point shooting team they have some spacing make no mistake they have some guys that can knock them down but it wasn't their game and the fact that they hit all of those threes in game two sort of made I thought made me at least believe that they were due for a statistical regression. Meanwhile, over on the Bucks side, I thought you were going to get a better game out of a guy like a Chris Middleton, even though it looked like no one was slowing Giannis down. So we looked at that number of 222, and I think what we said on Friday's show was there was a tiny bit of wiggle room on an under- if Phoenix didn't shoot the lights out, and certainly as series progress, you tend to see them slow down by a possession or two. And sure enough, you you did get some of that. Phoenix only had 105, roughly, possessions in this ballgame. It's sort of fuzzy math. I know we've, we've gone down this road before. Bucks had quite a few more. Five fewer turnovers, 11 additional rebounds. So Milwaukee had a lot of extra opportunities. Ten more free throws, seven more field goal attempts in this game and if you just went again on the fuzzy math that gives them about a dozen extra actual possessions and uh, you know you can work on work around the the edges on some of that sort of stuff and it comes out to roughly about seven or eight additional possessions in the ball game just in terms of like not worrying a ton about offensive rebounds things of that nature so the Bucks had about 112, the Suns had about 105, which is ever so slightly less than the first two ball games of this series. Part of the reason that was the case is that both teams actually shot the ball from the field relatively well. 48% for Phoenix, 48% for Milwaukee, which means someone's taken out from under the hoop. That's going to slow the ball game down. Devin Booker continues to be, with the exception of the big three-point explosion, a bit more human. And I think you can put a decent amount of that on Drew Holiday, 
who had the big-time kind of impact game that Milwaukee needed of him. This is the game plan with the Bucks. You're going to need to shoot the three ball exceptionally well to beat them. Phoenix did that in Game 2. Phoenix sort of did that in Game 1. Although, on the Milwaukee side, you might also argue that Giannis just sort of wasn't back to even close to full strength in Game 1. And that's why when we looked at Games 1 and Game 2, and I said, look, there are a series of anomalous occurrences happening favoring Phoenix through the first two games of this set. Phoenix is winning by double digits in both ballgames, but neither one of those games, if you were betting only on mean reversion, if every basketball game sat right on the mean, these games would have actually been really close, games one and game two. Here in game three, you had the mean reversion on the Phoenix shooting side, at least from downtown, and then you had Milwaukee get the home court bump where some of their non... Well, even their star players, even their better guys, just played better to keep up with Giannis. I would argue Pat Connaughton, who's actually been kind of decent in this series. The Bucs didn't actually do anything in this game to blow anyone away. They just took better care of the basketball and rebounded better. Which, to some degree, is going to fall on the shoulders of DeAndre Ayton, who got into foul trouble and only played 24 minutes. That's a big, big deal in this ballgame. Now, it was a, kind of a blowout late, so maybe there would have been a few more minutes at the end, but 5,024 minutes, that's, that's an enormous difference maker. I don't think that happens again in Game 4. At some point, you're going to see the things all kind of come together in the way that you expect them to. What I mean by that is, if we continue to handicap this game by pace, which, to me, is probably... At least if I, and, and some of this is guessing based on precedent, but tends to slow down as a series goes on, maybe a little bit less so because there are two games off between contests, so the teams are very well rested as opposed to having that same grinding you out every other day type of thing you did see in the bubble. Teams tended to get kind of worn out the longer a series went. I think you just see the team's begin to figure each other out a little bit more. The fact that both teams still shot 48% tells us that there just sort of isn't all that much that you can do on the Phoenix side to deal with a massive, brilliant, mind you, adjustment that Giannis has made, which is, first of all, he got out in transition here in their home arena. That's going to happen more often in Milwaukee than it does in Phoenix. It's just the nature of the beast. You get the crowd on your side, you move a quarter step faster, and he got a bunch of transition mismatches. Suns can't let that happen. Also, what we saw in game three, or game two, excuse me, with Giannis and the 40 point outburst in that one is that he's realizing he doesn't need to use the same Euro step move. He has to vary it up a little bit, and that's really worked in his favor. Sure enough, back at home, Drew Holiday shot the jumpers better, Middleton shot his jumpers better. And then Milwaukee had 14 threes, which still wasn't all that much for them. But if Giannis is going to be this efficient, then hell yeah, let the dude shoot. He also shot 77% at the free throw line on 17 attempts. That's a really big deal. That's that's a lot better than he'd been doing in the playoffs so far. A little bit of confidence goes a long way. If he goes on like a two or three game binge where he's shooting 75 to 80% at the line instead of 55, that's a lot of points. That's two, three, four points a ball game right now. 
All of that to say, Jay Crowder actually still shot the ball well for Phoenix. Devin Booker will be better in the next ballgame. Drew Holiday will probably be worse in the next ballgame. And at some point, you're going to see a team win and fail to cover. So far, the favorite has won and covered in each of the three games of this series so far. You had two overs and now a very so ever so slight under. And I actually, I believe the fact that we're seeing the total being adjusted down by a point and a half is an indicator that odds makers also believe you're starting to see some slowing of the series. I happen to think they're right. Because while Booker shoots better, I don't see how Crowder shoots as well as he did. Chris Paul, maybe he replicates it. Aiton, same thing. Like, by and large, other than Devin Booker, the Suns shot the ball pretty damn well in that ball game yesterday. And for Milwaukee, everybody pretty much shot the ball well, with a few rare exceptions of guys like Jeff Teague, uh, Thanasis Antetokounmpo, Jordan Wara, uh, excuse me, Bryn Forbes, largely garbage time. Those guys went a combined 0 for 8. If you pull that mess out of the overall number, then they're 48% shooting. So, like, the 48% shooting is very clearly an issue with the fact that we had to compute these numbers with the, the last little bit of the ball game. If, uh, what we should probably be doing is just looking at it before you got into garbage time. So they made 43 of their 90 buckets in the ball game. If they made 43 out of 82, like you take out the garbage time misses, then suddenly they're shooting like 52.5%. Do I think they shoot that well again in the next one? I don't. I really don't. I don't know what Phoenix is going to do about Giannis other than get the ball out of his hand, but he's made some really critical adjustments here in the postseason that he doesn't have to do in the regular season if he doesn't want to, and that is some short-range game that's not zero-range game. It's a big deal. It's a really huge difference in the way that teams can guard him. He's so long and so fast that you can't wall him off from getting past the three-point line. You have to just be okay with him getting to, like, the edge of the paint, and then the hope was that you could draw an offensive foul or force him into a weird look. He's overcoming that right now, but you can bet your butt Phoenix is working on strategies to combat it at a better strength. So I think game four is the one we finally get a tight one. I probably take the Suns to cover the four and a half points because I think it's going to be a really close one, and I also think it's staying lower scoring. At some point, the teams are going to have a game where they don't shoot quite so well, and the last one just barely went under. I think this one probably goes under by about two or three extra possessions and finishes around 216 or so. Uh, so leans, and we'll talk more about this as the week goes on because that game's not until Wednesday for what stupid reason, but we'll talk more about it between now and then. Let's dive into Denver. Let's dive into Denver because the Denver Nuggets are a team that... <sighs> are going to be dealing with an injury situation next year. I'm trying to think of the top way to talk about Jamal Murray without just feeling down overall. But let's we'll just go through it piece by piece. First of all, Paul Millsap, who they gave $10 million to for I don't know what reason this last year, he's off the books now for the second season in a row. I can't imagine they're going to bring back a 36-year-old Millsap on another deal where he's expecting to play any kind of meaningful minutes. Also coming off the books, JaVale McGee, who was a short-term deal, one-year deal with the Cavaliers. They traded him mid-season. Uh, he was making $4 million. But everybody 
everybody else's, you guys know, this type of stuff tends to come in with raises. Will Barton has a player option for $15 million. He's almost definitely going to take that because dude ain't getting 15 mil on the free agent market. And Jamal Murray's making 32. Jokic, 31. They got $2 million raises. Aaron Gordon actually has the reverse contract. His is going down in salary next year, but he's still at 16.5 mil. Jamichael Green, 7.5 million. Facundo Campazzo, 4. Michael Porter Jr., 5. And uh, then uh, Monte Morris has a non-guaranteed $8.3 million, but I'm sure they'll keep that around because of, you know, the no Jamal Murray until probably February or March. Denver, from a fantasy standpoint, and this is reality-wise, things don't change all that much for the Nuggets because JaVale McGee wasn't playing, and Millsap was splitting his time among a bunch of different guys, including Michael Porter Jr., Jamichael Green, I mean, the list goes, and Aaron Gordon, as the season went on, he became the power forward. The problem is that a lot of those guys just don't have fantasy game anymore. Paul Millsap was one of the ones he thought, well, like, if he could play starters minutes, he'd probably have some fantasy game, but he's not going to get starters minutes because his body can't handle it. Monty Morris is extremely efficient, low turnover guy, but there's just nothing eye-popping about his stuff. And the closest thing we got to something was Facundo Campazzo, who played to a, a relatively decent marker down the stretch when there was just no one else around. Because at that point, uh, Monte Morris was out. We knew Jamal Murray was out. That had been the case for some time. And so Campazzo got free reign to, to play 28, 30 minutes of ball game, and he was sort of sitting right on the edge of fantasy value. Generally for the Nuggets, it was Jokic, Murray went healthy, and Michael Porter Jr., and I'm inclined to lean that way going forward. Assuming Jamal Murray is out for at least the first three months of next year, probably more. By the way, you're not drafting him. I don't care how far he falls. You're not drafting him unless you're squatting on him in a keeper league. It's the only reason to keep him for the following year at a cheap rate. Nikola Jokic is probably going to go first overall in fantasy drafts next year. And, and frankly, I'm okay with that. Although, it's worth noting, Denver's already talking about getting him rest days during the season. So don't expect him to get up near that 100% hit rate. 90%, I think, on rest days is probably the expectation. So somewhere in the five to eight games of just giving him a night off, maybe when they're flying back home after a long road trip, I don't know what the plan is on that front. We don't have next season's schedule yet. Jokic is not going to play all 82 games next year. He won't. He's still freakishly durable. If you took Jokic this year and removed, say, six to eight rest games, he's still the number one player in fantasy. That is how dominant he was this season. He played He played so many more games than the guys around him, it actually didn't matter. That's the cushion he had built up through durability and strong play, because he was number one by averages and he was number one by totals. But his totals marker was, I mean, Steph Curry was number two, who played nine fewer games than Jokic during the regular season. If you wipe out that differential... Jokic was still ahead of him. I mean, this is really easy math to do. Jokic was ahead of Steph on a per-game basis. 
So clearly, if they played the same number of games, Jokic would be ahead of him by totals as well. And there really wasn't anybody close. So even if Jokic sits out six to eight games next year, he is still most likely the number one player in fantasy sports, unless you think that some part of his game takes a small step backwards. I don't know how you make a reasonable argument that that happens other than to say this dude shot 57% this year. He's a 53% career guy. Maybe that 57 comes back towards 53. That's the only real maybe you can throw into the mix. Jokic has always been a little over a steal per game, like 0.7, 0.8 blocks per game. That was right on his career mark. Nothing crazy there. Rebounding was... Uh, up a little bit season over season, but he also played about two extra minutes this year compared to last, and 10.8 is not weird. He's done it before. Twice, actually, 18 and, uh, or 17 and 18 seasons, he had about 10.8 rebounds per game. Great free throw shooter. That was up this year, but that's something you can actually assume could stick because he's had some 85s and 83s, and you know, 87 this year was better. Maybe that comes back down a tiny bit as well. Uh, and, you know, limiting his three-point attempts to 3.3 is about where he's been at. So there wasn't really anything anomalous, use that word again, on Nikola Jokic's season except the field goal percent. If that comes down, yeah, maybe he slides back towards a near-dead heat with Steph Curry on a per-game basis. I bet he plays more games than Steph next year, even with the rest days. Does that make Jokic a value? No, nobody's a value at first overall pick, but also I don't think that you'll be disappointed either. Michael Porter Jr. is the other big name I want to talk about on Denver. And, and you know, this is like, going over the Denver stuff is interesting because, I mean, MPJ is really your, your, uh, your only argument point on this team, at least as far as I'm concerned, because I, I don't, like, no maniac should draft Aaron Gordon on Denver. Very clearly not going to be the guy. Would you draft Facundo Campazzo? I wouldn't. I, I, like, I don't think he plays enough if Monty Morris is still on the roster and healthy. The only guy I might even take the smallest look at, super late in drafts, would be Jamichael Green. Because he'll play a bunch of minutes in the games that Jokic rests. And there's... He has he has some fantasy per-game ability. Not a ton, but a little. It's a long way from a sure bet. Compazzo was your closest other on Denver. But Monte Morris wasn't there for a lot of those games. You can, you can go to the tape... I mean, not the actual tape. This is really the fantasy tape. Because so I'll go to the actual game log for Facundo Campazzo, and you can see he played okay in the playoffs, but his role diminished as Monte Morris got healthier. Monte just wasn't there to uh, bleed into Campazzo's playing time. There's, similar to the Jermichael Green argument we were just about to make, there's an argument to be made that Campazzo's a guy you could consider if you thought he was going to play 32, 34, 35 minutes a game, which is what he got when Jamal Murray and Monty Morris were each out for the Denver Nuggets. And over that stretch, he was inside the top 80, 
because of assists and steals and very good free throw percent for the most part. But as he drops off, it wasn't so much that his per game ability was terrific as it was he was a point guard on an NBA team playing over 30 minutes a ball game. You've got to be a real goof not to have some fantasy value seeing that type of action at the one. Like, you're a point guard with Nikola Jokic. At some point, you're just going to give him a ball, and he's going to put it in the hoop, and you're going to get an assist for that, even if you didn't have to do anything else. That's not to take anything away from what Campazzo was able to do this year, but, uh, like, it, it wasn't the world's hardest gig, at least to get assists in that role. But look, even when he was only playing like 25 minutes a game, he really wasn't that close to fantasy value there. It was when he was at 33, 34, that's where he got up and over the cusp. I just don't see how that happens for a season next year. How does he get to that that marker? The way he gets there is if Monty Morris is not around. So keep a close watch on that. I've, I, I'd be floored if Denver didn't guarantee Morris's deal and keep him around. Like, there's a ton of non-guaranteed money for him, but he's been a really good player for them, and he probably starts if he's healthy. But he won't put up enough to do fantasy stuff either, unless he magically gets 32 minutes a game, and I guess that's possible. But would I blow a draft pick on these guys? Eh, maybe my 15th rounder on Monty Morris? Yeah, you could talk me into that we find out he's starting during training camp I just don't think there's enough meat on the bone there so let's talk Michael Porter Jr. who in my estimation is the most interesting Denver Nugget fantasy player to try to break down for next year Michael Porter Jr. had by all accounts kind of a weird year but I actually thought a pretty good one And I'm curious how the general public felt about the MPJ season. They should feel good about it. He missed games for COVID protocol, and then he clearly wasn't himself after coming back. But roll it all together, and he finished inside the top 30 on a per-game basis. 19.7 boards, .7 steals a block, almost three three three-pointers on 54% shooting from the field and 79% at the free throw line. This is for the season now. That's not any kind of little stretch, and that's if you include, because it's the whole season, the games where he just didn't have his wind back after either being sick or quarantined or some combination of both. With no Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. is going to get all the offense he can handle. For the season, he took 13.5 shots per game. Over the last six weeks of the regular season, he took 16 shots per game, which is basically the length of time Jamal Murray was out. I didn't actually look up the precise date. 15, 16 shots, somewhere in that range. And as we all know, guys, usage is value. Michael Porter Jr. is a pretty easy top 30 next year. And I would actually feel comfortable taking him anywhere around the 22 to 38, 16 slot window. Because outside of the COVID protocol stuff he got wrapped up in, he was actually very durable this year. 
think he missed like one, maybe two other games the rest of the season. It's pretty remarkable that a dude who missed like almost two weeks with COVID protocol still got up and over 60 games played on the year. And so his totals value was right in line with his per game value. He's young. So there is that possibility that maybe, and look like he missed the beginning of his career with injury stuff, but I saw a lot of good things from MPJ on the durability front this last year. I don't know that we can officially give him the 10th category because there just sort of isn't enough data available to say that that's coming. But what we can say is this dude is one of the best shooters. He's a knockdown shooter already in the NBA. Shot 45% from downtown this year. He's a great shooter. He blocks probably around a shot per game. He'll get you probably a little less than a steal per game. The rebounding should stick. The scoring should actually go up. I think he'll be in the 20s next year. And the the question, I suppose, can he get the free throw percent up from 80 to like 83? Because if so, you're talking about a second rounder on a per game basis at that point. And there's actually an argument to be made that if Michael Porter Jr. plays 76 games this coming season out of 82, that his totals value could creep into the edge of the first round. It's pretty rare for me. You guys know this. It's pretty rare for me to talk about a hype guy maybe not getting enough hype. He was the one this last year. There were a lot of buzz dudes out there this most recent weird COVID sprint season, and MPJ is the one that hit. There's always the one. If you can find it, more power to you. I prefer to get the info first and then do our work after the fact because if you took any of the other hype guys this season, you probably wore it. Like Christian Wood looked like he was on his way and then injury and then bad free throw shooting and all that good stuff. Like Shea didn't pan out. The big name that did was MPJ. Trey didn't. Luca didn't. Luca, I mean, Luca was fine. Like he, he wasn't bad. But the rest of these guys... Booker, these hype guys didn't work. But Michael Porter Jr. did. My fear with MPJ is that someone's going to draft him at 20 next year, and that's going to wipe away most of his value. There are, I think, probably more than 20 guys I would have on my fantasy team, I'd rather have on my fantasy team ahead of Michael Porter Jr. But I'll tell you this. If you're getting, and we can, like, this last season is not going to be a great indicator of uh, what we should expect of the draft order going forward. Like, if you take the top 20 names from this last season, you probably don't. You can't just say that's going to port over and that's the way it's going to be. But, like, if you look at the top 30 per game guys... And uh, Wipeout Karai Thomas in, in Houston. So you, you probably need to go to the top 31, which takes you as far as Jonas Valanciunas. Nikola Jokic, Steph Curry, Kyrie Irving, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, James Harden, Kevin Durant, Damian Lillard, Nikola Vucevic, Cat, Miles Turner, Giannis, Jason Tatum, Freddie Van Vliet, Bradley Beal, Chris Paul, Bam Adebayo, Drew Holiday. That's the first 20, by the way. Is there anybody in there that you'd want Michael Porter Jr. ahead of? 
this coming season. Maybe Freddie Van Fleet, because we really haven't seen him stay fully healthy for an entire year. I might go MPJ over Van Vliet. Oh, that's that's a questionable call. Chris Paul, possibly. I don't I can't imagine he stays as healthy as he did this last season again. But really gonna be tough for MPJ to do better than top eighteen on a per game basis. Is there anybody on that list you think takes a massive drop-off? I actually think Miles Turner might be better next year if the Pacers play with the the way that they should. And maybe he, I don't know, he's going to get deeper into the ballgame. He's probably not going to be top 13, so to say better is probably incorrect, but I think you probably see more games out of him at the very least. He's one I might consider. Let's go a little farther. Rudy Gobert, Clint Capella, Porzingis, Okay, well, there's one because of injury stuff. Sabonis, Paul George, Zach Levine, and then you get to MPJ. So I I don't, like, you might just see those guys drafted in front of Michael Porter Jr. I truly don't know. I truly don't know. His ADP is going to, I think, open my eyes either in a good or a bad way for next season, and I just don't know which yet. That said, put him on the list of guys of interest for us, and he can go in the uh, not old, the non-boring guys with potential upside that, like, there's actual beyond what he did this last season, largely because most of next year is going to be played without Jamal Murray. He's just going to have all he can handle. So to recap, I don't care about anybody on this team. <laughs> it's not true. I think Michael Porter Jr. could actually do better. Nikola Jokic can't possibly do better, but you still got him in line for a possible, I don't call it a win, but it'd be close to one, uh, or just like you get what you need out of him. And beyond that, you're probably leaving it alone unless we find out who's the starting point guard and we find out they're playing big minutes. Then you're looking at Monty Morris, Facundo Campazzo as very late potential grabs for those Denver Nuggets. And that's about all she wrote on the Nugs. Tomorrow, we break into the Southwest Division, looking forward to continuing our journey, and we are just a few short weeks away from, not the draft, because you know we don't pay much attention to that. If you want to talk about the draft, you can check out the uh, podcast I mentioned earlier in the show, the All Rookie Pod, and the uh, Punt Intended Dynasty Show. Those guys doing some wonderful work. You can follow me on Twitter, at Dan Bespris. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. Hey, go open an account over with our buddies at mybookie.ag. Let's all win some money together using promo code HOOPBALL. I'll tell you more about that on tomorrow's program because, I don't know, I'm tired. We're 30-some-odd minutes into an off-season show. Put a lid on it at that point. Have a great Monday, everybody. So long. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.